What is SCC? What does it mean to be part of Southport Church of Christ? So our vision here at Southport is about following Jesus, transforming lives. This is the mission Jesus calls us to, that we're not just a church of six pastors, but we're a church of over 600 ministers. Okay, so I just want to say I love this. This is great. I love family services. I love having the kids in. I love us just being a family together. Um, And before I get started uh, on the sermon this morning, I just wanted the kids just to look up at me for a moment. Could you kids look at me? I just want to tell you guys um, that you guys are invaluable, treasured members of our church community. You guys are not secondary members of this church. We love you guys, and we see you guys as the future of this church. And we are longing for the day when we can see you up here leading us in worship, preaching and teaching, discipling uh, and serving uh, the, the church and serving people uh, and serving God. And so we're really excited about that, guys. We love having you in here today. And I've also got a really special challenge for you guys this morning. So on your way in, you may have picked up a piece of paper, and it would have looked something like this, guys. This is a sermon notes piece of paper, and on the back, there's a table here. If you can fill this out with Bible verses that I share today, afterwards, I'm going to give you guys chocolate (laughs) and some healthier snacks for the parents that prefer that. So you've got to write down as many Bible verses as you can from today's sermon, and you guys will get chocolate. So you've got to focus, you've got to pay attention. Um, But there's a catch. If you do it, you will get two chocolates. One, you get to eat. The other, though, you have to find another kid from Kids Church outside of your family, and you have to give it to them. So you get to eat one, and you have to give one away. And if you pay attention to the sermon today, you will know why. So let's just pray before we get into the sermon. Lord, we love you, God. We love being a part of your family. Um, And as we gather together right now around your word, Jesus, we want you to speak to us. We want you to speak directly to our hearts in a way where, that we hear what you are saying and that you would cause change in our lives and in our hearts. And so I pray that you would uh, empower the word to go forward today uh, and that it would go forward with your heart, Lord God, and your power. Uh, and we all just agree uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, in our sermon this morning, we are continuing on in our series uh, through 1 Corinthians. And can I just say, it has been a roller coaster. It has been a lot of fun. If you guys have been paying attention, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about divorce, divisions, lawsuits, uh, we've covered singleness, marital intimacy, uh, Pip even did incest on Mother's Day. It was really crazy. Food sacrifice to idols, our rights as believers, and last week we even did gender roles. You know, all the non-controversial easy stuff, just been rolling through it. And I don't know if it's the Lord's favor upon my life or if it's 
uh, Pastor Steve's strategic kindness. Uh, but the next portion of 1 Corinthians has landed with me, and it's the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So I get the easy one. Um, Pastor Bryce gets lumped with lawsuits and divorce and singleness, and somehow I get communion. The Lord's favor is upon me. Well, that's what I thought at first. Um, but as I dived into this text, it's actually not all sunshine and roses. Um, it's actually a very strong rebuke from Paul, uh, as we'll see this morning. And it's a rebuke for the attitudes of the heart that were present in the Corinthian church at the time. And in true Apostle Paul fashion, he does not uh, pull his punches. So let's turn together to 1 Corinthians 11.17. Kids, 1 Corinthians 11.17. There we go. So Paul just starts out super gently with, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Wow. Just a gentle kind of takeoff here by Paul. Your meetings do more harm than good. Don't worry, he goes on. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Ouchie. Wow, maybe Pastor Bryce didn't have it so bad with lawsuits and singleness after all. Scathing. And so it was just in verse 2 of this exact same chapter that the Apostle Paul came to the church kind of saying, hey, well done, I've got praise for you in the traditions uh, that you hold to. But then Paul, he kind of just changes gear here. And the gear that he changes to is reverse. He just reverses right over the top of the Corinthians and what they're doing. He says, I have no praise for you. And, and he takes a very commanding tone with them here in the Greek. He's issuing commands and directives to them because ultimately, Paul here sees something that has to be corrected, that has to be uh, fixed. And so to help us understand what's happening here, um, some of the context at the time uh, is helpful. Uh, in the early years of the church here, they would often do something called a love feast or an agape feast. And this was a common meal, a commonly provided meal where they would get together, everybody would bring something to provide, and they would eat a meal uh, as one. And this may have also mirrored some kind of Greek customs at the time where during festivals they would gather together and each would bring something for the entertainment or for the meal. And, and this became a part of the Corinthian uh, church culture at the time, and it was kind Kind of annexed alongside uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. But Paul says something really interesting here. He says that the way that they conducted it meant that it was not actually the Lord's Supper that they were eating at all, regardless of what they may have been calling it. It's kind of like uh, when you say you're going to the gym. And you, you put on your active wear, but you just stand in the halls, you scroll through your Facebook feed, you check a couple of emails, you have a chat with some people, and you get your Instagrammable selfie, and then you leave. I mean, you can say that you went to the gym, but you didn't really go to the gym, because you missed the entire purpose of it. 
And here, the Corinthians may have called this the Lord's Supper at this love feast, but it was anything but loving and anything but the Lord's Supper. Instead of a unified meal of hospitality and of shared provision and communion with the Lord, it was more of a messy, self-centered scramble. And the text actually shows here that, that these meetings included people of different social standings. So there were the wealthy, there were poor, there were possibly even uh, slaves coming to these meetings who were all, in reality, one in Christ, but were divided in these meetings by their social standing. Some would have had large amounts of food and drink that they would have laid out in front of themselves, uh, and they would have been able to get started early, while others couldn't arrive until later. And it was likely the poor and the slaves who weren't able to arrive till later because of their work and because of their positions. And so these meetings showed this crazy partiality and favoritism towards the rich and the wealthy and a bit of a humiliating disregard uh, for the poor amongst them. These types of class distinctions were actually quite common uh, in the ancient world at this time. Um, but this was something that the followers of Jesus were actually called to completely and wholly reject. A similar hard attitude is actually addressed in the book of James. In James 2, 2 to 4, I repeat, James 2, 2 to 4, it says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so here, in what was meant to be the Lord's Supper, discrimination and division was actually rife within the church. And so as we read on in the text, Paul actually uh, comes and tries to correct their thinking about the Lord's Supper. He continues on from verse 23 and he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what Paul does here is he strips it back. He strips it back to its core, reminding them that Jesus is the one who instituted this tradition that would point them continuously back to the cross, back to what matters most, the remembrance and the proclamation of Jesus, not the meal itself. He unpacks what the Lord's Supper actually is, and he follows this with a bit of a somber warning uh, to the church at the time. After he kind of reversed over them, he gets out, he picks them up, he dusts them off, uh, and then he gives them a warning about something much more dangerous than a strong rebuke from him. From verse 27, he goes on. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Continues on here. It says, but if we were more discerning, with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. Yeah, maybe, maybe divorce and singleness was better. <laughs> Here Paul is drawing a line. He is saying there is a right and there is a wrong way to take the Lord's Supper. And from the text here, we can see that we can potentially partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, whereby we sin against the body and the blood of the Lord, against his church, against him personally. And I think that is something from this text that we all uh, need to reflect on personally, and each time we take communion. But thankfully, Paul doesn't just stop here and say that we have to come to the communion table with our own strength, with our own good works, with our own, own righteousness. He does, however, though, say to the Corinthians they need to examine themselves and they need to discern the body of Christ as they come together for the Lord's Supper. And this is a key takeaway for us this morning. In communion, we can't afford to just go through the motions. We need to engage personally with Jesus. The Lord's Supper, or communion as we call it, it, it might be an ordinance that we observe, but it is not just an activity that is conducted in a vacuum. It's not just the kind of recollection of facts and circumstances of his death. It is a meeting point with Jesus together as a body and as a community of believers. And Paul here shows how serious this is by linking it toward uh, linking it to the Corinthians' attitude and their own sicknesses and some deaths. Rather than discerning the body in their meal and reminding themselves of that beautiful forgiveness that they have with God because of Jesus, they instead drank judgment upon themselves. And that's quite hard for us to hear. That's hard for a, a Western kind of mindset to hear because it's hard for us to accept that God pours out judgment. But this judgment is not condemnation. If you read uh, from verse 32, it says that this judgment comes from God so that, we, so that they won't be condemned with the world. Instead of just letting these irreverent attitudes continue during communion, just let them slide, God, like a loving but a firm parent, brings a rebuke, a discipline, a correction. The writer of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 12, verse 5 to 6, quotes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Just making sure you're paying attention, kids. Actually, bonus points for the Proverbs reference. In Hebrews 12, 5 to 6, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone he accepts as his son. I am the blessed uh, father of four children. I 
Love them all. And, and parenting is hard. You kind of want to do this balance between being firm uh, and setting up good boundaries and training them up in the way they should go, but not so much so that you exacerbate your children and you alienate them. It's, it's a tricky balance. You honestly need a lot of wisdom from God to be able uh, to parent well. Um, but ultimately, if you're a good parent, you're going to choose the option before you that leads to their flourishing and protects them from harm to the best of your understanding. You see, the parent who loves their child would tick the box to allow the leg to be amputated to save the body from gangrene. As hard as that is, they will let the surgeon do awful things to the body in order to save the life. And out of context, a parent who does something like that could be brandished as as cruel or as unkind. But a loving parent will always make the hard decisions for their child that leads them to life. And here, this is that type of judgment from the Lord who sees the end from the beginning. Because if we do not discern the body of the Lord um, as we come together like this, His judgment may bring us to that place because the Lord will do what he must to spare us from being condemned with the world. He loves us that much. Paul then finishes off this little part of his letter uh, by writing this. He says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. I don't know why, but when I read that final statement there, when I come, I'll give you further directions, it sounds a bit like Paul uh, doing that old parental threat. Just you wait till I get there. Just wait till I get home. I'll deal with you. But in this portion of the passage, Paul offers a really simple solution. It's as if he's saying, guys, it's not that hard. When you eat, when you gather together, just eat together, but if you're really hungry, satiate your hunger at home so you're not feasting in front of some poor person who doesn't have any food, so that when you eat, it can really be the Lord's Supper that you enjoy together. So that, guys, is the text. But we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with this here at Southport? Because for some of us, the last thing that we need is more intellectual accumulation and knowledge. We, just, we don't want to walk out of here thinking, oh, those Corinthians and their disorderly love feasts, how improper, and then do nothing about it. Back only a few chapters in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul mentions that knowledge can puff people up It can lead to this inflated sense of ego if it is detached from an application uh, in love. Kids, I've got a question for you all. Put your hand, I'll get you to put your hands up. Do you guys think it's more important to God that we are loving or we are clever? Hands up, kids, if you think it's more important to God that we are loving. Oh, that's almost all the kids' hands up. That means that you are also clever. Well done, kids. 
When the word of God is shared, we need to be asking the question of the Holy Spirit in us, God, what are you saying to me personally? What are you challenging me on this morning? We cannot ever afford to leave this place thinking that was interesting or that was entertaining and miss out on what God wants to do. And so as I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking to myself, there's no risk of this at Southport. I mean, we do eat at home. We don't make a meal out of communion. I am yet to see uh, anyone scrambling over their neighbor to get that last morsel of the communion cracker uh, and hog it all to themselves. I haven't seen that. I mean, I see that for pink bun every week, but not for the, not for the communion cracker. You guys would kill for pink bun. I know it. But if we dig under the surface, we see that there is a heart attitude behind this activity that led to it manifesting this way. And we may not have the same outworking, but we need to examine ourselves to see if that same heart attitude within us needs correcting, needs adjusting. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we make these distinctions in our own hearts? Do we over-prioritize our own social comfort, our own social cliques when we gather? Do we cling to our wealth and sometimes put our blinders on to the needs of our brothers and sisters around us? Do we avoid those people that we deem a little bit socially awkward? Do we come to church with a me-first attitude, looking at what we can get out of church for ourselves, rather than asking God, what can we bring for the provision of the body today? Because focusing on others first is not something that will ever come easily to us in our Western consumer mindset. It is so counter-cultural for us to think that way. There was a day, and it it was not that long ago, when the ads for the US military quoted John F. Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But man, the times have changed quickly. I was talking to my wife, and she said that she heard an Australian Defence Force ad that finished with the phrase, see what the army can do for you. See what the army can do for you. I found that hard to believe, so I actually checked it out and scrolled through the Australian Defence Force website, and do you know what I found? I found a sales pitch about what the Defence Force can do for you. It's exactly what was there. It had phrases like stimulating work and flexible working options, uniquely supportive community, travelling around the world, exploring new cultures, eat well, be paid to stay fit and make friends for life. Wow, it even had one heading that literally said, live in comfort. (laughs) End quote. I read through all of that and I thought to myself, man, I want to join the military. Sign me up. Some of you guys do too right now. I should be getting a a sign-up commission bonus or something. That sounds great. Sounds fantastic. Way easier than getting four kids to bed every night. Sorry, Stace. You're on your own. I'm joining the Defence Force. (laughs) But this is how our culture has shifted in a generation. And in the same way, our churches can be sought out based on a cultural consumerism mentality, looking first and foremost to what the church can do for them. 
The problem is, is this type of advertising is insincere. When you join the Defence Force and you're deployed into a war zone and there are bullets spraying over your head, you're going to be like, where's my life of comfort? Where's my flexible working options? I'd like to go home now. <laughs> Likewise, though, our attitudes to church shouldn't be primarily about what the church can do for us. We should be asking God, what can I bring? What can I bring to build up the body? We should not be passive spectators and consumers at church, coming to feast but not to provide. For example, I will be honest with you guys, it is way easier for the Howe family to do church at home online. It just is. It is just a lot easier for us. But when we're not here, we miss an opportunity to come and to serve the body, to encourage, to support, to pray with people, to build new relationships with the people of God and to serve God by serving his people. I just want to really ask you guys to let the Holy Spirit search your heart now. Ask God where you can be challenged and changed this morning because that is the beauty of the Word of God. It doesn't just give us information. It creates opportunities within our hearts for sanctification, for change in our hearts and in our lives as we behold Jesus in His words. It is powerful and effective. And this same challenge going out this morning is all throughout the New Testament. Writing to the Philippian church, in Philippians 2, 3 to 4, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And I think that that is a real challenge to us all this morning. That's a challenge to me this morning. I'm preaching to myself here. And I believe this is what the root issue in the Corinthian church was. That's what they were battling with, self above others. And though it finds its expression in different forms, we too just might have to keep battling that attitude of the heart because the more deeply we love Jesus, the more, di- the more we will be directed by him to love other people. If we're mad about Jesus, we will not be able to sit by and feast while our brother or sister starves. And I mean that metaphorically and literally. The Apostle John uh, says in 1 John 4, 19 to 21, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother as well. But for us to apply this practically, we have to ask ourselves, what does this type of love look like? What does it look like? How do we, how do we practically do this? You see, no one would be walking into the Corinthian love feasts seeing love. They can call it what they want, but real love does not look like that. It doesn't look like me first. Jesus taught that his kingdom doesn't operate that way. In Mark 9.35, Jesus says, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. 
that was not the heart attitude in the Corinthian church as they gathered together for the Lord's Supper. And this truth, this truth that leads to unity needs to be practically worked out within our churches if we're going to have an effective witness out there in the community. It's absolutely essential. Few things will destroy a church's witness in the community faster than disunity and a lack of love for each other, a lack of love for people. All throughout this book of Corinthians, we've seen that Paul has been setting up a way of being the church that removes stumbling blocks out of the way where possible so that people will be able to receive the gospel. In Corinth, what should have happened is those wealthy people should have come in with extra for the poor. They should have even been willing to go without so that the poor amongst them could feed. They should have been willing to be a blessing so that they could also be a good witness And I think that's the heart posture that we need to adopt. We should come together planning how we can bless the body, asking ourselves questions like, who can I help this morning? Who can I come and who can I help? Is there a mum with uh, a tantruming in toddler whose baby you can hold for a moment? Is there a mobility impaired person um, that you can grab a drink or a meal for? Is there someone who's just had a really rough week and you're just going to sit there and let them pour their heart out to you? Is there someone who is lonely who you can sit with and be company for? How can you practically be the body of Christ? We should be planning for that. We should be planning, who can I come this morning and encourage Who can I sit with and pray with? Kids, this includes you guys. Who can you come to church and make feel loved? Is there a lonely kid with no friends that you can make a friend with? This is the attitude that we need to have when we come together. Who will go home more blessed because you are here, because you gather together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And I believe this is something that should define us as his people. Because the broader church out there, it is not always seen like this. It's not seen by most as a group of people uh, that are unified in love and in purpose, but it should be. It really should be. Because our unity and our love for each other lights up our witness as genuine, and that is so exciting. Jesus said it himself. In John 13, 35, he said this. He said, by this Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Kids, I really, really pray that you guys just so get this. That church isn't just a Sunday program that we come to. It is the gathering together of Jesus' people where we come together around him as a united family with deep, sincere love for each other. A love that does not draw distinctions, but in humility considers others as better than ourselves. And I believe that that is a real challenge to all of us this morning uh, from the book of Corinthians. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, you're not a God who leaves us the same. You're constantly challenging us onward, drawing us closer to you and to become more and more like your wonderful son. And so I pray that as your word has gone out this morning, that that seeds would land on fertile soil and that you would sanctify us, you would grow us, you would encourage us and challenge us and that your beautiful church would be made more glorious uh, through the work that you do.
Lord, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that we are one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.